Welcome to the Dyad Podcast, produced by Dyad Strategies, the podcast about research, trends, and critical issues in the fraternity and sorority industry. I'm your host, Gentry McCreary. A few years ago, I stirred up a bit of unintended drama by tweeting in advance of a big fraternity sorority professional conference about what I called the talent gap in the fraternity and sorority industry. Some people tried to make a lot of hay over that tweet, suggesting that I was insinuating that the people who are doing this work on college campuses are unintelligent or bad at their jobs. Nothing could be further from the truth. I think the work that fraternity and sorority advisors do is incredibly hard. It's complex. It requires expertly navigating institutional politics managing a complex network of relationships between constituencies with often competing interests, and addressing deeply ingrained cultures that are often problematic. Doing the work of managing fraternities and sororities on campus is really hard and really complicated. The complexity of that work is magnified when you consider who is doing it. A salary survey by the Chronicle of Higher Education a few years ago found that fraternity and sorority directors are the lowest paid director level professionals in all of higher education. This is typically the case because they are often the youngest director level professionals in higher education. So we have the youngest, lowest paid people doing some of the most complex, high stakes work on our campuses, which makes literally zero sense. And to make matters worse, many of the best people in our industry quickly move out of fraternity and sorority advising to greener pastures. Jobs with less complexity, less stress, and more money. So we have a constant churn of young professionals doing this work. An AFA employment survey found that the average length of time that a campus fraternity and sorority professional has been in their current job was barely more than two years. This is the stuff I was talking about when I said we had a talent gap. Professional competency and preparedness of entry-level professionals is a really important topic in the fraternity and sorority industry because so much of the work on our campuses is being done by entry-level professionals. So, I wanted to find researchers who were studying professional preparedness of student affairs professionals. Turns out, I didn't have to look very far. Some of the folks doing the research on this topic have pretty extensive backgrounds in fraternity and sorority life. In this episode, I'm talking with a team of researchers studying the perceptions of senior student affairs officers, or SSAOs for short, related to the professional readiness and competencies of entry-level student affairs professionals. Their first article related to this research was entitled, Senior Student Affairs Officers' Perspectives on Professional Preparation in Student Affairs Programs, and was recently published in the Journal of Student Affairs Research and Practice. They've also presented at a number of national conferences about this research. Dr. Sonja Ardwin is an assistant professor in the Department of Human Development and Psychological Counseling at Appalachian State University. She's also an active alumni of Zeta Tau Alpha and a board member for AFLV. Dr. Rebecca Crandall is an assistant professor in the Higher Education and Student Affairs Program at The Ohio State University. Lastly, Dr. Jeremiah Shin is the Vice President of Student Affairs at Louisiana State University, an alumnus of Lambda Chi Alpha Fraternity, a past president of the Association of Fraternity and Sorority Advisors, and also a current member of the AFLV Board of Directors. 
I can't think of anyone better to be talking to about issues surrounding new professionals and their professional readiness and how that impacts the culture of fraternity and sorority communities on our campuses. And I'm thrilled to welcome them to the podcast today. Becky, Sonja, Jeremiah, welcome to the podcast. How are y'all doing today? Good. How are you, Gentry? I am well. I'm, I'm really excited to, to talk to all of you. I've known Sonja probably you the longest. We met at an ACPA Nashville circa 2005, maybe? Yeah, spring of 05. Yes. Yeah. Uh, way back in the day through our mutual connection, Dave Pittman, and have known Jeremiah for a good long while through AFA and our service on the board together. Uh, and Becky, this is our first time chatting, so super nice to meet you and, and glad you all are here. Yeah, thanks a lot. I'm, I'm really fascinated by the research that you all are doing. And, and, you know, Jeremiah has talked to me about it, you know, at, at great length as, as we've wrestled with uh, issues and things that we see, particularly in the fraternity and sorority industry around new professionals doing this work. So you all decided a few years ago that you were interested in studying the perceptions of senior student affairs administrators on um, career preparedness of entry-level graduates. And, and, and to me, that's such a fascinating line of research. And, and, and just for context, I'm really interested as we get started, why study that, right? Like why do the perceptions and attitudes of VPSAs matter when it comes to this work? You could be studying anything. Why is this something that's worthy of your scholarly attention? Yeah, I'll kick us off and then I'll let uh, Jeremiah and Becky add their perspective as well. But um, so kind of I've been thinking about this um, for a while. The first book I got to write um, with Stylus, uh, The Strategic Guide to Shaping Your Student Affairs Career, Jeremiah um, contributed to that book as well. And so that got me thinking about kind of career pathways and preparation in the field of higher ed and student affairs. Um, as somebody who is a first gen student from a rural working class place, like career pathway was not something uh, we talked about a lot in my hometown, but um, it fascinated me to think about how we were preparing people to have this kind of longevity in a very specific uh, career. Um, and uh, Jeremiah visited, I used to work in Boston and he visited my class uh, one day cause he was there for a conference and he guest lectured and then we went out to dinner and there was a big hoopla in the field at the time about, you know, people calling each other out. And so we were debating that over dinner and he asked me a very poignant question over that dinner, which was, um, are we, meaning kind of the field or prep programs, are we preparing people to do the work of higher ed student affairs or just to critique it? Um, and I was like, that's a good question, right? Like, I don't know. Like, we That's very much a Jeremiah that. type question. <laughs> it is, yeah. Um, you know, and he knew it would like get a rise out of me as well. So, you know, that probably helped him ask me the question. Um, but Becky and I have been chatting about some similar things as folks who um, had been um, student affairs full-time practitioners and we're now uh, on the faculty side of things. And so I said, why don't we do this like as a trio fashion? Because uh, we've all been full-time practitioners. We've all taught classes in some capacity. Um, and so let's think about kind of this both and here. And we went to look at the existing research, uh, the angle that hadn't been covered or hadn't been covered fully uh, was around this perspective of uh, senior student affairs officers. And there was buzz in the field about kind of our SSAOs happy or not happy uh, with kind of who they're hiring at the early career level. Any ads to that, Jeremiah, Becky, did I represent you justly? <laughs> you did, thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think we saw it also manifesting, uh, you know, things like ACPA, where these were topics of center stage debate. And so I think that we just recognized that there was a, not just a scholarly need, but like, like you're saying, Sanja, there was, people were actually 
interested in this in terms of the implication for their own work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is fascinating as I've, you know, I, I'm, I'm a member of the student affairs Facebook group, but I, la- I rarely, I rarely join in, but it, it really is amazing how much argument and calling out and, and, you know, you read these things about call out culture and it's like, yeah, you see it all the time on that page. It's, it's really fascinating. Uh, and, and, and I agree. It, it seems to me that, you know, talking to senior student affairs administrators would be a good place to start to really understand how new professionals are being prepared from a graduate preparation program for, for the actual work. Uh, and my interest in this obviously is through the lens of fraternity and sorority advising. Uh, that's the world that we work in. And, you know, there was a study done a few years ago by the Chronicle where they, you know, do the salary and they do this every couple of years. They look at, you know, the salary survey uh, and fraternity and sorority advisors were the lowest paid director level staff in all of higher education. And, and when you read between the lines of that, we know that it's because they're the youngest. Uh, and, and AFA has done some work looking at the average age of, of campus-based Greek advisors, which I think is now around 27. Um, uh, very young, very new. So we know that these folks are really young. There's a lot of entry-level professionals doing this work. So based on the research that you all have done, your, your conversations with the senior student affairs administrators, why does that matter specifically? How might the youth of the workforce in fraternity and sorority life be exacerbating some of the issues and challenges that we see on campus with fraternities and sororities? I think that, you know, for me, it doesn't necessarily have to do with um, youth. And I think that our, you know, our our SSAOs would, would say that it, it's really about um, lacking a broader perspective. Right. So I, I think that the broader perspective or, or the lack of a broader perspective that comes with being an early career professional is fine if you are someone who has a learning mindset. But it's more problematic, I think, when it leads to oversimplification of some pretty complex stuff. Um, you know, I think uh, when we were talking to SSAOs, there's there's an increasing willingness to criticize vice presidents, which all of them, I think, that, that mentioned it specifically, I don't think anybody has a problem with being criticized, but it's, it's not productive if you lack the perspective necessary to actually have the nuance necessary to, to, to having a, a good criticism. So um, I think that sometimes the, the relative youth, which also maps with the inexperience, brings with it an assumption that all options are equally viable. And, and that's, that's never the case. And so um, for whatever reason, I think those are some of the things. And, and then the other thing that I'll say is, for whatever reason, I think fraternity and sorority advisors in general tend to spread themselves a bit thin at times. Uh, I think they, they try to do everything instead of what they're positioned to do, uh, more so than a lot of other um, functional areas might. So despite the fact that SSAOs didn't talk much about fraternity and sorority professionals or, or any other functional area professionals specifically in, in our study, I do think that, that it's really about lacking that broader perspective. And certainly those who've been in the field a little longer and those who've, um, who've been a few places and those who have um, had the opportunity to gain that perspective and those who have a learning mindset, 
I, I don't know that that would be a um, criticism that that SSEOs would have of them, but I, I do think it, it comes down to really lacking that broader perspective. That that perspective is so important. And as I've you know began working in the world that I work in now, doing you know the research, the consulting, I didn't appreciate how valuable that perspective is until I had it. Right? Uh, you know, you, you you do this work, and you've been on a campus or two, and so you think you know everything based on those one or two campuses. Every situation is unique. Everything is different. And having a multi-institutional perspective and lens to look at and think through some of these problems is really helpful. A lot of new professionals like that. It's This is what I know that we did at my undergrad. And you may know actually very little of what was going on behind the curtains. And then this is what we did in my assistantship in FSL. If, if I had an assistantship in FSL, now I'm doing the work. I'm working in this office. And I, I don't know what I don't know, right? Because I lack that that perspective. That's a, that's an interesting, an interesting thought. You all found that SSAOs see entry-level professionals generally, so not, not fraternity and sorority people specifically, but just entry-level folks generally struggling to understand things from a, the term you all use, a systems perspective. Uh, and when I read that, I said, well, gosh, fraternity and sorority advisors deal with a lot of systems. Um, and there's, there's often, maybe more politics involved with those systems when you think about the different stakeholders, keeping alumni happy, keeping students happy, keeping other stakeholders, national organizations. Uh, there's a lot of systems at play simultaneously. So, so why does this systems perspective matter so much and how might the lack of that perspective be, again, impacting some of the challenges that we see with fraternities and sororities on campus? Well, it matters because a university is a unique set of relationships, the likes of which isn't found in many other organizations. And and to your point, fraternity and sorority life is also uh, embedded in a whole other set of, of unique relationships. And so whether you're working on campus or whether you're working with sort of the national headquarters piece or all of it together, which is the case in fraternity and sorority life, there are multiple rationalities at play at all times. Sometimes they're aligned, sometimes they're not aligned. So to be effective on a college campus in general, to say nothing of fraternity and sorority life, you have to be attuned to how these rationalities play out, why they play out the way they do, and uh, where are the appropriate windows for you to make the case you want to make. Uh, because the windows are not wide open. And when they do open, they're not open for long. So again, the problem isn't when early career professionals don't understand systems. It's when they don't think it's important to navigate the system, which is usually a product of not understanding them. And when they lob criticism again at uh, those whose job it is to advocate for them um, in the in the manner that they believe is most effective, you know, especially during times when that way is not what makes people feel good in the moment. Do you, oh, go ahead, Sonja. It's also uh, can be harder for folks um, depending on the size of the organization. Um, so as we think about smaller campuses versus larger campuses, um, in some ways we have pushed people to not have a systems perspective because we're like, hey, this is your corner. You're an expert, stay in your corner um, versus on community college campuses, um, which traditionally don't have FSL, but on smaller kind of regional publics um, or smaller privates, 
uh, where you depend on the system to get work done, right? You can't do that necessarily independently. Um, and so I think we also have to understand that sometimes the nature of the organization lends itself uh, to better understanding systems than others because of the dependency or interdependency uh, you may have. Were there specific anecdotes that came up as you were having these conversations with, with SSAOs about how that issue specifically plays out, that, that lack of a systems perspective? Yeah, there definitely were. And I think um, some of it was thinking about, uh, Jeremiah mentioned timing and things like that of, you know, really wanting their SSAOs to lobby for certain things, but not understanding the impact timing would have on that. So uh, basically, like if I am only you know, if I pull this lever whenever I feel like pulling this lever, um, then it may hit another lever and really put things out of balance. And so um, having people understand that we can't just do something, even if it's the correct or right or just way to do it, um, because if we do that right now, we may compromise um, some of the movements we already may be having towards further equity. Um, and so understanding kind of um, not only the, the institutions of the system, but also understanding how that relates to uh, local, um, state, and federal politics, how that relates to donor dollars, um, all of these other pieces um, that come at it. It's not that SSAOs didn't agree in terms of advocacy or action. Um, it was that they were trying to be more uh, intentional and strategic about doing it. And I think also folks not understanding that SSAOs don't wield all the power. So there's this perception that they can, you know, that they're sellouts or whatever because they don't <laughs> do the thing but sometimes you know there were folks who in our interviews were like i i don't even have that amount of power like i don't have that power so that's cute but that's just not going to happen so helping folks to understand those dynamics as well and then again, really, it, go, go ahead jeremiah i'm sorry yeah i think it goes back to again that assumption that all options that you can imagine are equally viable and that's just and that's that's almost never the case and almost no one at any level has independent decision making authority there's all these different dynamics at play. And it, it, it reminds me of one of the things that you all wrote about um, this, I guess, uh, distinction between the ideal of the work and the reality of the work. Uh, one of the things that you all wrote about in, in your article is that, that, that senior student affairs officers see new professionals struggling to come to terms with the reality and the, I think the words you used were the nitty gritty parts of student affairs work. And, and when I read that, I mean, that certainly related to me, I, you know, coming out of graduate school, I was, you know, had been a graduate assistant, but I was shielded from the nitty gritty, right? Like I was advising IFC and I advised the dance marathon committee and it was fun. It was advising. I was rarely involved in the nitty gritty, right? The difficult decisions, the politics where we're balancing and, and weighing these things out. And, and my first role out of grad school was as a director. Uh, you know, so I, I didn't even have a Greek life person ahead of me. I was director of Greek life at Middle Tennessee State. I was right in the middle of it. I went from zero to 100 quickly and it was, it was overwhelming. It was a really steep learning curve. And as you think about the realities of, of FSL work and the fact that so much of that work is being done by new professionals, how do you see that disconnect between ideal and reality, again, impacting the challenges that we see a lot of these new professionals struggling to overcome? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think that it's, um, and it's layered, right? So I felt like I did my master's work at Florida State, um, and I feel like they didn't really necessarily shield me, um, but it was a layer, right? They removed one layer of kind of the, um, 
the roadblock between me and the reality. And, and then when I started my first full-time job at Florida State as well, actually, uh, they removed the other kind of layer of the shield. And then it was like, oh, I get to see behind the entire curtain, like you just gave me halfway before. Um, and so I think a lot of us get into the field of higher ed and student affairs because uh, we care about students, right? We either had a great experience and want to replicate it, or we had a shitty experience and we want to uh, stop other people from having that. Um, and so I think um, some folks in their GA experience start to see, oh, it's not like being a continued student leader, right? Like there are different parts to this um, and it may be different. And so I think specifically with FSL, um, some folks had a phenomenal experience. That's where they found their community. That's where they did their leadership development. Um, and so they want to um, help recreate that for other folks, but um, they don't understand that their experience has been on the micro level, um, whether it's chapter-based work or council-based work or those sorts of things, and now they're going to be in charge of the macro-based level, uh, the entire um, FSL community at their institution, and so that's a very different, in some ways that goes back to the systems mindset, even though it's a, a slight elevation of that systems mindset. Um, I think we also, to your point, we don't need to shield GAs from some of that stuff. Uh, obviously, we have to comply with law. We want to, you know, uh, make sure they're having ideally a positive learning experience, but also letting them uh, struggle with some of those things and know that it's going to be hard work because uh, one of the things we found in our study, too, is that some of the SSAOs are like, don't people realize like this is challenging, complex work? Like, they thought it was just going to come in here and be like, oh, we're having fun with students. Like, no, nah, it's like more um, nuanced than that. Um, and so helping, going back to Jeremiah's point, uh, these early uh, career folks in FSL understand their role is not necessarily about one-on-one -on -one relationships. It's about broad, complex concepts. So we're talking org dynamics. We're talking collective behavior and reputation, accountability, systems, um, all of those pieces. And I think the other part, and some people might not like that I'm saying this, um, but is that we also have to help help FSL folks know that you're not necessarily unique, right? Like other people advise student groups, other people have numerous <laughs> members and moving parts to their organization. Um, and so while FSL work is specific, it's not necessarily special. Um, and so I think that um, ideal of this is different, it's special, you can't re replicate this. Um, I think we need to burst some of that bubble as well. That it's fascinating as I think and I compare, right? So I think about, and I don't want to overly generalize my own experience, but I've, I've seen this play out in, in, you know, multiple places that I've been where, you know, a housing GA, right? You're a live-in hall director. You're the front line. You understand how the budget impacts your work. You understand how making parents happy impacts your work. You're dealing with all this real-time, everyday running a building, maybe, right? Or, or at least co-running a building. If you're in student conduct, you're hearing cases, you're helping with investigations, you're, you're doing the work. And, and I think maybe in FSL, because there's so many different things that go on within the average fraternity and sorority life office, some of it pleasant, a lot of it not so pleasant. It's, it's maybe easy for GAs and FSL to say, we're going to give you the the lightweight stuff, you know, you advise this committee, you help plan recruitment or Greek week. And it's, you get this kind of Mary sunshine, Pollyannish view of what the work is like, because you don't get experience doing hazing investigations. You're not in, in the meeting with alumni where you're discussing whether to keep this chapter open or to close it and thinking about all the considerations there. So I, maybe fraternity and sorority GAs are at a unique disadvantage in some ways because there are so many different things they can do in their work. And oftentimes they're given the, 
the fluffy stuff. That, that's been my perception. I don't know if, if you all have seen that in, in your work with, with students or with your, your FSL offices. I think it depends. I know, um, and again, this is just my unique institutional context. I feel as though the students who do practica or do work with that office are given access, but I think it's, um, you know, that's perhaps a rare instance. And I, and I think it, um, as you were talking, I'm thinking there are ways that we could potentially suss that out in a classroom space, but again, it doesn't, it's not as high stakes when I'm talking through a case scenario, not to say there's not value in that, but there, you know, what are the ramifications? of that you maybe get a lower participation grade in the class like you know what I mean so I think it's it's hard because it's trying to be a good steward of or, or, or wise in the ways in which we create these opportunities for students to learn without just throwing them to the metaphorical wolves so yeah it's tough well and I think it also underscores some of I know what we've talked about as as implications or recommendations I mean professionals have to take some responsibility too right I mean so we, you know, if we are just using graduate students for a, for a workforce just to get things done, so yeah, things have to get done, but we also have to take some responsibility for doing some teaching, yep. right? And so I think that utilizing and taking, you know, I, I think about when I worked at Indiana University, we had a, you know, a, a great um, student affairs master's program, and I, I worked for a, a person named Steve Veldkamp at the time. And he really took seriously our, our role in being basically what he called a teaching hospital, right? I mean, he, he really, it is our responsibility to be sure that the next generation of student affairs professionals are well-trained when they leave here. The classroom's doing their job, we've got to do ours. And so I think that's part of what we as practitioners have to take responsibility for. And to, and to play off that anecdote, I like that, even if you're not the one conducting the operation, you're in the room where it happens, right? Like you're watching it take place. You're hearing the conversation. You're not shielded from any of that. And I think that's a big distinction that, yeah, like I may not let a grad student lead a high stakes hazing investigation, but I'm going to have them sitting in the room asking supplemental questions, taking notes, listening in. I don't know if a lot of graduate students get that experience. And I think that that's a real that's a real challenge uh, and a real issue when, when we expect people to be able to come in and, and their only real experience is supporting, advising, working with students. I see all the time, and Jeremiah, I know you see this too, and, and we've talked about this of young fraternity and sorority life prof professionals saying things like, what? I don't really care about the alumni, you know, helping chapters recruit advisors, not really my thing, because everything I do is through the lens of the student and advising students and supporting students that it's easy to forget how important some of those other relationships are until sometimes it's too late and you've damaged those relationships and then you've got some, some real challenges on your hands. Well, that goes back to sort of the, uh, the lack of assistance perspective and short sightedness, because if your goal is to support students, you better put your time into figuring out how to support them. If you were abducted by aliens right? You, you need to be sure that they are supported whether you are in the room or not. And so that requires you to do some of the things like recruiting alumni advisors and setting up those systems. Because again, you know, the, you know, our job is not to be sure that we have the best in, in-person face-to-face relationships. The job is to be sure that students are learning and students are preparing for what's next in their life. And students are going to leave our universities and make the world better. 
And um, yeah, a lot of that's not going to have to do with us. It's going to have to do with other interactions that we facilitate, but that we're not a part of. And that takes a bit of a, well, I mean, it takes a, a level of maturity. It takes a suppression of ego. Uh, it, it takes a number of things. And, and again, those are, those are things that we have to be more intentional about building. Fascinating conversation. We're going to take a quick pause for a commercial break. We'll be right back with more of our conversation with Drs. Becky Crandall, Sonja Ardwin, and Jeremiah Shen. So here at Dyad, we've been proceeding through these strange times of quarantine and social distancing under the assumption that things are going to get back to normal. And instead of focusing on how to remain relevant in the short term, we've been using this time focused on creating research and resources that will help you do your work better once things get back to normal. But what if things don't get back to normal anytime soon? There's no guarantee that social distancing will be over by the time our students come back this fall. Things could be weird for a while. And at Dyad, we've been thinking about that possibility too. So we're excited to launch a new initiative aimed at personalized, chapter-level virtual programming at a fraction of the cost of our in-person offerings. Our new Assessment Plus Virtual Programming Package will feature an online survey of your community, followed by personalized virtual workshops for each chapter in your community by one of our talented facilitators. The need to educate your community will not be going away, even if social distancing remains in effect. At Dyad, we are committed to helping provide the highest quality data-driven education at the lowest possible cost to campuses during a time of tight budgets and anxiety about the future. To find out more about our assessment plus virtual programming packages, visit us online at www.dyadstrategies.com. All right, we're back with Jeremiah, Sonja, and Becky. So one of the things that, that I wanted to talk about uh, and this, you all don't touch on this in your paper, but there's a lot of research out there that touches on this. And I wonder if this came up, uh, a lot of research about millennials and job hopping, right? That so we're all Gen Xers. So our generation, previous generations, certainly stay in one job for years, right? There's all these stories of, you know, my my fiance's dad, you know, worked for the same company, will retire from this company, he's been there for 35 years, right? That doesn't happen anymore. There's a lot more moving around, the gig economy, job hopping. Um, I certainly see a lot of this in FSL, right? Where, you know, maybe 10 years ago, you would come in and say, yeah, that first job, you should hang in there, you know, three, four, maybe five years. And now it's, you know, if you're in a bad situation, a year, maybe two years, three at the most. And and that really, we've identified that as somewhat problematic in terms of the churn, the constant churn of professionals and, and really no one seeing the long view, moving the ball down the field with a long view. We're just constantly chugging up Hail Marys and, and getting picked off instead of driving the ball down the field. Is this idea of, of job hopping a, a topic that came up at all 
in your conversations with VPSAs or a lack of, you know, there's a lot about grit and persistence that like when the tough gets going, do you stick with it or you just go find another job? Did that, did that concept come at all uh, up at all in your conversations? It did. I would say it came up a bit indirectly though. So certainly some of these uh, generational patterns that you're talking about manifested, but I think uh, it really had to do with what we've talked about a bit earlier in terms of the ideal versus the realities of the work. And so um, folks graduating thinking that they're going to perhaps have a first job that they make 60 grand in, you know, I know I've had conversations like that with my own students. I'm like, Oh no, honey, that's not happening. (laughs) Um, So, you know, again, I don't know that as I heard the SSAOs talk about this, it was more about how can we as faculty in these programs cast a a, a truer vision of what it means to work and especially in those first and second jobs. Um, How do we help individuals understand how to have a career trajectory and think through those kinds of things? Um, They did mention, what they have observed, which is that, like you said, when things get a little bit challenging, people jump ship or they're willing to leave a position for a negligible raise. I think one of the things that as even I've been going back through and rereading this stuff that stood out to me is I don't want to frame these early career professionals through a deficit perspective. We don't know their situation and maybe that extra thousand dollars a year is something that they need. And so I do want to acknowledge that. And I didn't hear the SSAOs coming down on these individuals as much as really holding a mirror to us as faculty again in these programs of saying these are some ways that you can help equip these people more holistically um yeah do you jeremiah or sandra do you have other things that you would add about that well i'll add that i am a millennial gentry actually depending oh actually that you use (laughs) um but uh and i'm an example of this right like i you know was taught as a master's student that you have to uh, move out to move up. I was taught that you do, you know, most people do a two and out. Uh, I was taught that and I uh, resisted that uh, in theory as a master student was like, oh, I'm not going to do that. Like that's some BS. Like I don't have to follow the rules. Um, and it's exactly what I did. The longest job I've ever had in my, how many years has it been? 14 year, almost 15 year career in higher ed um, were the three years I was a faculty member at Boston University. So I've literally done two and outs at every job except for BU um, and hopefully at App State because, you know, I'm on the tenure track. But um, (laughs) so uh, but for me, it was about, okay. I did a job until I felt like which was two years um, like I've contributed what I can to this institution. um, And there was always kind of a natural like reason to leave um, for the next thing. And so it's been really interesting because. Um, I do have followed that and I wouldn't define myself as a job hopper because I feel like I give everything I have for the time I'm at that institution. And then I go to the next place and give everything I have at that institution. Um, But I have been questioned in job interviews about that. Um, And I say, well, look at the longevity I've had with other organizations like Leadership, or I did some work with Mortarboard for 10 years or other things. And I said, you know, if I find something to be fulfilling for a long period of time, I'll stay. Um, And so I think that, um, and I don't think people are surprised when early career folks, particularly in FSL, program board housing uh, leave after a couple years because we know those are um, frequent night weekend heavy student facing heavy crisis management jobs and so in some ways we expect um, kind of the the burnout and move on especially not getting paid enough sure we could spend a lot of time talking about the whole issue with salary and and what folks are are worth and what they deserve I think about this in terms of you know a conduct office, you're hearing cases, right? Like you're hearing cases, you're focused on student learning. 
residence halls, you're, you're running your building, you're doing some education, but it's, it's, it's new every year. It's a new group of residents. You're going to continue using this model with some tweaks over time. Uh, and there's really not a long view that's necessary in a lot of that work. It's hey, every year it's like, you know, it's like the kindergarten teacher who's got a new crop of students every year. Fraternity and sorority life's not like that, right? Fraternity and sorority life is about these communities, these cultures that exist within these communities, um, addressing issues, addressing challenges, taking a long-term perspective. You don't, you don't get that far in a year or two, right? If, and, and Jeremiah, I'm curious to get your perspective on this, having supervised FSL in a few different areas along with other units, why this idea of job churn and people staying in a job for a couple of years and then moving on is particularly problematic in terms of the big picture of where we need to try and move the fraternity and sorority experience on a campus if, if, if that culture is, is maybe problematic. Well, I mean, it's, it's sort of, um, I mean, I kind of, the first thing that popped into my head when you said that was, was student government and why, why student government rarely makes any, any forward motion because every year there's a whole different group that come in and want to leave their mark um, mm -hmm. and do it their way. And so nothing ever really catches on. And so when you are churning in a fraternity shorty life area, uh, you know, every, every person, especially if it's a small shop, wants to come in and leave their mark, do their thing, and then go on to the next thing. And so you can't build a culture that way. You, you can't have anything take hold. And what, what's interesting is um, in my first fraternity sorority life job, really my first job out of graduate school, I was a coordinator of fraternity sorority life. The person who came after me was somebody that I knew well, someone that I actually recruited into the job. Um, and, and actually carried on much the same thing. The person after him was one of his former students. The person after that was one of his former students. Then there was another person, and now I think there's a person that was actually one of my student workers when I was in there. So essentially that thing has been, it's had the same philosophy the whole time, and that's unheard of, right? But, but I, I do know that at least for the first several years, uh, there was a continual thing and, and there were, you know, there, there was some success to be had from that. I'm not suggesting that's, that's, you know, the way necessarily to go about it, but I am saying that there is value to having some continuity, even if it's just continuity of philosophy. Um, and so that's, what's missing when you're churning is there's not a continuity, continuity of philosophy and there's not a continuity of people. And I think about my own experience, I've lucked into that at one of my jobs. When I started at Alabama, the immediate three people who had had that job before me were still at Alabama. You know, one had moved over to student conduct, one was in admissions, one had moved up to an associate VP. Um, and they let me do my job, but, and they didn't try to tell me how they thought it should be done, but they were invaluable as resources and they were always willing to listen and talk and and I was able to get that long I mean I'm talking about a 20-year period of time of folks who had done that job on that campus who were still there who were still engaged who still cared a lot about fraternities and sororities on that campus how much just having that continuity benefited me in terms of knowing what had you focused on what worked what didn't work? How far back do some of these challenges go? Uh, and no, not a lot of other people have that, right? I think about how much that 
that helped me do my job and move the ball down the field on some things, as opposed to at another job where it was just come in, hey, the last person was terrible, do what you want to do. And so it was like, okay, it's the Gentry show, right? It's like whatever I want to do. And I did some good things and probably some really boneheaded things too. Having that historical context uh, was, was really valuable. And, and yeah, it, but I lucked into it. Most other people that come in, it's yeah, well, you're the, you're the expert on Greek life. Maybe here's a strategic plane we did five years ago that's been sitting on a shelf collecting dust. Have at it, right? Well, that's where we can actually, I think I would push back on some of my colleagues who are senior student affairs officers is I think sometimes the philosophy of Greek life is I don't want anything bad to happen. Um, and that's not a, that's not a sustainable philosophy, right? And that, that's a, that's operating from a deficit perspective. And so I think it's incumbent on folks in my position to be able to articulate what we want to have happen, not just what we don't want to have happen. Because when you articulate what you don't want to have happen, um, I don't know, that's, that's just not a very good basis or, or, or a, it's, it's not an inspiring basis for a culture, but certainly not one that I think uh, translates into being able to build a really good program over time. Yeah, so it's almost like the risk aversion perspective. Like, let's, let's do as little as possible to keep something bad from happening, but we're not actually out being proactive, doing good things that are going to be the things necessary to, to reverse that culture. I would say, too, uh, going on with that pers- that kind of line of thinking is that um, then the job hopping is not necessarily the issue. The issue is uh, philosophy and continuity. Um, and so, you know, who should be providing that philosophy and continuity? Is it the early career professional that you know is only going to stay uh, one to four years maximum? Um, or is it whoever wherever that's situated that is uh, facilitating that unit. So whether it's within student activities or a standalone department um, or those sorts of things, or is it the senior student affairs officer on that campus? And so uh, often we want to point to early career professionals, I think, and say they're the problem, um, but also thinking about how are we contributing to that problem in terms of the the culture, the support, um, and how we philosophically um, arrange FSL on our campuses. Totally, totally agree. And literally, we could spend another hour just talking about that issue. We don't have another hour. Um, the, the other thing I wanted to talk about, and this is something that I've written about, and, and I'm curious the extent to which it came up in, in your research. One of the things that I see with with younger professionals, and not not explicitly or only, I guess, exclusively younger professionals, but certainly you see it a lot there, are, are folks, you know, kind of viewing their work through the lens of the thing that they're passionate about, right? A lot of, a lot of folks who get into student affairs have a thing that they're really passionate about. So say I'm really passionate about men and masculinities. And so I want to weave that into every conversation I have. So hazing, new member education, masculinity, social culture, alcohol use, masculinity, sexual assault, masculinity, brotherhood, masculinity, like everything I want to view through that lens. And I want to talk about that. And maybe because of this, you see fraternity and sorority, younger professionals really struggling to connect with their students because maybe their students aren't interested in talking about masculinity all the time. Uh, So I, I wonder how much this specifically as you think about the the ideal versus the reality, did this concept of I want to do this thing I'm passionate about regardless of context, uh, did that come up at all in in your conversations with senior student affairs officers? Yeah, it certainly, they they certainly alluded to a similar phenomenon playing out 
among some early career uh, staff. And I think Maslow probably described it best when he said something to the, to something like when the only tool you have is a hammer, it's tempting to see everything as if it were a nail. Sure. Uh, the, the folks we interviewed appreciated and applauded actually the, the passion that early career professionals brought with them and saw that as a really important thing to have um, an, an asset um, to have with them. Um, but I think sometimes they experience the intentions, um, well, they experience them in different ways. I think they generally experience the, the passion as, as being pure and rooted in genuine care and concern for students. But there was some concern that a broad application of one's passion might, might limit their contributions to institutional objectives if they were just focused on that one thing. I can't recall the exact quote, but one of the SSAOs said something to the effect of, sometimes you've just got to do the work, uh, which, is, <laughs> which is similar to something that, that has been offered. And sometimes, it's, sometimes the work's not going to be something you're passionate about, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't need to get done. And that doesn't mean that your students don't deserve the best effort. So I think that there was sort of a, you know, an acknowledgement that passion is a good thing to have, but the fact that you're passionate about something doesn't necessarily make you good at the work. It's it's a fascinating thing to think about, and I, I I I think that yes, passion important. Pursue it. Become an expert at something. Right. Make your spell. Make yourself indisposable at something, but but you've got to be a generalist, right? And I think maybe that's the challenge when you're working with, especially in FSL. You got to know a lot about a lot, right? Like you, you have to be a generalist in order to be successful doing that work. And if everything is viewed through that one narrow lens, that can really, that can really create some challenges. I, I'm fascinating that 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 comes up, and maybe an area of, of further research about um, specifically chasing those passions, why they got into the field and how that relates to their perceived success in their role um, and, and their, you know, stick-to-itiveness in terms of staying in the job versus moving on. Well, this, this job isn't conducive to my passion, so I'm just going to go somewhere else that maybe is, and, and, and the work hasn't gotten done and the ball hasn't been moved down the field. Well, and I think that the other, the other piece that I, I think um, is important to note about that is – Understanding that whatever your passions are, you have to you have to at least understand those in the context of the organization that you are working in, right? So uh, you, it could be that you are work, you are passionate about something, and you're working at a public school in a state that that that's a difficult thing to get legislators on board with, right? So it does not mean that you cannot. Um, create a better environment for your students. It does not mean that you cannot advance that cause. It does not mean that you caring about it is, is for naught. But what it does mean is it's not going to get embedded into the institution's culture. Uh, you're not going to probably get legislators and, and, and donors even to care about it. And, and, it, and it's something that, um, that might not become a priority during the three to five years that you spend there. So, so it's one of those things where it's important to understand the, how one's passion fits into the institution, but also the, the limits of what, what you can do with that. And that is something that our SSAO spoke to. Particularly if you're in a state where your legislators and donors are 
passionate, uh, not about the thing that you're passionate about, right? Uh, you know, living in Tennessee sure. and seeing the, the big turmoil, that sex week that happens on UT's campus every week, uh, every year, churns up in Nashville. It's just, it, it's, it's comical at this point, right? There's these, you know, two state legislators who just love to rail about UT sex week and why are taxpayer funded dollars going when they're not, right? It's a fee funded activity, neither here nor there. Um, connected, I think, to the next topic I wanted to talk about, though, which goes to the, what I often see is the vast political divide between fraternity and sorority members and the young professionals who are working with them and advising them. Uh, and there's a good bit of research out there on this topic that on any college campus, you can almost guarantee that fraternity and sorority members are going to be the most politically, culturally, socially conservative. Uh, and we have young professionals who are very, uh, very progressive, very social justice minded, uh, and, and very open about their politics often in, in person or on social media or both. And, and I see a real disconnect as I travel around and do the work that I do of, of students who just don't feel like they have any sort of connection or relationship at all with their FSL office because of what they perceive to be this quote unquote liberal agenda, whatever that is. And, and, and we live in a world of increasing tribalism um, particularly as it relates to the disconnect between these young professionals and students and those alumni and, and chapter advisors and volunteers that we talked about. Did this come up at all in, in your conversation with SSAOs? Uh, and if so, what, what were those conversations like? Yeah, so social justice related topics came up a good bit in the conversations. Um, and I do want to start out by saying that the SSAOs we talked to wholeheartedly believed that that facet of our programs was a, was a strength. It was a good thing that we were graduating Absolutely. early career professionals who, had, who were equipped to have conversations and to affect change related to diversity and inclusion. And at the same time, there were these interesting tensions that played out, um, particularly when we heard the critique that oftentimes we are perhaps focusing too much on social justice to the detriment of, like we've mentioned before, some of these administrative skills or competencies that are essential for success. Um, and so it was this curious phenomenon as we talked with these folks that we saw playing out. And I think um, back to the conversation around passion, I would say wholeheartedly that, again, programs, graduate programs are not a monolith, but most of our graduate programs and student affairs are, you know, we're social justice minded. Students have to take a, at least a course. And so I think that we're perhaps attracting folks who that that's their heartbeat. They care about these issues. And so, um, you know, again, it ties to all the things that we've talked about, helping folks understand a systems perspective, helping them understand that when you are in these positions that you have kind of these dual identities where on one hand you're a representative in, of the institution and you had to have to advocate for the institution. It doesn't mean that you have to relinquish your passion points, particularly around equity and inclusion or social justice, but um, our job is not to be an activist. And so, you know, and I could see particularly the fraternity and sorority life did not come up directly where that is a tension. And I think that it's incumbent upon us to recognize that I don't know that this is necessarily, again, a deficiency. Like, I don't think this is a bad thing about early career professionals. I think it's incumbent upon us as faculty and as SSAOs to help folks understand how to, um, for, for one thing, understand where the students they're working with are developmentally. I think too mm -hmm. often we, you know, we equip folks 
with all this information around theory and all these principles and stuff, but we don't necessarily help them to understand how to be good stewards or responsible with that information. And so we expect somebody who's in a, a first year in their undergraduate program to understand the nuances of all of this, whereas they've maybe even, they maybe never even thought about where they align politically. They're just still voting the party of their mom and daddy or whoever their guardians are, you know? So, um, so yeah, it definitely came up. Um, other things, Sanja and Jeremiah, that y'all would potentially want to add with that? I think too, it's helping, to Becky's point about helping where, understand where students are developmentally, is also recognizing your path to understanding, right? Like, we weren't always these vessels who understood all of these things, right? I grew up in small town, rural, conservative Louisiana. Um, and so, you know, also understanding the journey I've taken and giving some grace to people that, um, you know, maybe they're just ignorant and they're not hateful. Um, but there may be saying things that I receive as hateful now that I wouldn't have received as hateful 20 years ago. Um, but how do I give some grace and saying that they, they may not know now, maybe they are, maybe they are being hateful. Um, but how do we also provide spaces for learning to say maybe things I'm saying, right. Land on other people, um, as ignorant or hateful. And so I think giving some grace and helping people understand that it's our jobs as scholar practitioners to serve every student that comes on our campus, whether or not we agree with them, um, whether or not we want to interact with them or teach them. Uh, we have signed an employment contract that says it's my job to be an educator for every student that is on this campus. I'm just, as more and more research comes out about this, particularly this issue of social psychology, the, the moral roots of liberals and conservatives. I, I'm a, as Jeremiah is a huge fan of, of John Haidt's research on moral foundations theory. And, and there's a lot of other people who have studied this. I'm trying to think of the name of the author of the book uh, is Don't Think of an Elephant, but it's all about how framing and language matter so much. And, and in, a, in a world of increasing tribalism, if you walk into a group of students and you're using the language of your tribe, and they're in another tribe, it's an immediate turnoff, right? Like it's an immediate, hey, we're not going to engage with this person. We're not going to listen to this person because they're not, quote unquote, one of us, right? And, and, and I don't know that we're teaching that level of psychology to graduate students. And, and maybe for a lot of folks, it doesn't matter. Maybe for folks who want to work in fraternity and sorority, maybe that first 90 days, we do some education around that because there's so much science behind the language, the words that you use and what people perceive about you and how that can be a turn on or a turn off for them, depending on the alignment of what tribe they perceive you to be in and, and what tribe they would put themselves in. Yeah. And I think it's hard. And I recognize I sit here holding a lot of privileged identities. So it's easier for me to sit there and go, well, you draw more what is the saying? You draw more flies with honey than vinegar, you know? Right. And so I can go in and be all friendly and Southern and potentially because I grew up in rural North Louisiana too, you know? And so for example, a super Trump supporter, like I can, I can talk the talk in the sense of relatability on a human level. And so, but again, I recognize that there's privilege in that. And so I appreciate what you're saying about helping folks understand the psychology behind it, but it is, it's touchy when we're asking people to basically step aside, you know, outside of their identities, especially if those are marginalized identities or oppressed identities and say, okay, well, you know, you just got to be nice to the people that you've had very hate filled experiences with. So it's, it's very, it's tough. Yeah. 
and I think to your point, Gentry, and think about what Becky's saying, I think it's also like, we don't have to lessen our message. We just have to change the jargon. Um, and I'm That's not right. It's the words, so right? It's the language. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So like, I can have a conversation about social justice with my parents. I'm not going to say, hey, we're going to have a conversation about social justice and racial equity. Like, no, nah, like we're going to, I'm going to use a different framing, um, yeah. but I'm still going to engage in that kind of conversation. Um, and so I think it's, it's really, it boils down to like, we can use all the theory and moral psychology, but we can also talk about know your audience, right? Yes. Like we can have the same message to five different audiences in different words and with different tones. Yeah, th those of us who are class straddlers, like it's easy to reference, like how would I explain this to someone who I grew up with, right? Like how would I explain intersectionality without using the word intersectionality and, 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 and help them understand why not only this is a thing, but it's an important thing, right? Yeah, and I think that's hugely important. I often in class, I'll say to my students, and I want you to explain this to me like you would my people back home. <laughs> I think that's great. I think you know, that's awesome. If we're, yeah, and then also, and then I'll get off my soapbox. I think it's also about helping folks to understand that just because someone disagrees with you doesn't mean they're discriminating against you. Mm -hmm. And and so I just, it goes back to this calling out culture um, that we talked about at the very beginning, you know, so I, I, hear me saying this again. I don't think the SSAOs were coming down on the early career folks. I think that they they would come down on us if we completely removed these kinds of I don't know content areas from our curriculum. But at the same time, it's I always use the word stewardship. How are we stewarding that information in, in a responsible way? So you all have published the first of what I understand are going to be a number of papers based on the research you've done. Um, what's next in this line of inquiry? Where do you go from here? What publications do you have on the hopper? What's, what's, what's on the cooker here? Yeah, so um, Becky mentioned that uh, we've been working on a paper around um, how SSAOs um, perceive social justice in higher ed and student affairs grad programs. So uh, Becky led us um, on that paper and uh, it's currently under review. Uh, so we will see kind of how that process goes, but um, that one's written and so we're trying to find a home for that paper. Um, and really helping people explore, like she talked about, uh, this tension between, uh, you know, being an activist and being an advocate and how can we be a both and advocate for the student um, and identities and social justice, but also advocates for the institutions that employ us. Um, and then uh, I'm trying to uh, work on a third paper um, around uh, the asset based perspective. So uh, the SSAOs did uh, talk about uh, the value they believe early career folks add to their divisions. And so I think oftentimes uh, we hear what uh, what early career folks lack or what they don't bring or the perspective they don't have, uh, but they uh, add a lot um, of value to our divisions and our institutions. And so uh, that'll be the third paper off this project. And we have a very uh, significant data, like lots and lots of data, because we did two rounds of interviews and then two rounds of guided reflection. So uh, we may have a fourth or fifth paper um, that come out of these as well. Um, and then we are also have been in conversations about extending uh, this project uh, to future projects as well. I don't know if Becky wants to talk about any of that. Yeah, I would just say we, uh, we've heard from the SSAOs, but I think there's a lot to be gleaned from the perspectives of the, the grad students themselves and early career professionals, especially because you know, there is a growing body of research in this vein, but since the ACPA and ASPA, the most recent version of the competencies and now the, the racial justice imperative, things like that. So I think, I mean, and it'd be interesting to see even beyond what the current situation is. I'd, I'd be curious to see how the field shifts even now once we're out of this pandemic craziness. So, and I'll say that the, um, ACPA and NASPA are supportive of this work. Actually, the NASPA Leadership Exchange, the new volume 
was emailed out today. Um, and one of the articles in there specifically talks about this. Um, and they actually, um, you know, have a sentence or two about our, our uh, work because NASPA um, hosted a meeting about SSA, SSAO prep or SA grad prep with SSAOs, faculty members, et cetera. Um, and so um, we know that this is something that our professional associations are going to want to see more out of because it is a 10 year uh, kind of anniversary of the competencies. And so thinking about how are those being used, how we do it better. Um, and I appreciate their framing in the article that I, I read this morning that it's really about lifelong learning and collaboration. So we can't do it all in grad prep. The SSAOs can't do it all in their divisions. Um, and so how are we creating this kind of uh, feedback loop or, or collaborative effort between programs, associations, and divisions to uh, kind of make this happen? I think that's important to underscore in general because oftentimes graduate preparation gets lumped onto the grad prep programs and on the academic side and graduate preparation is is more than that. So it's something where we we've all got some work to do. We've we've absolutely all got some work to do and and I'm I'm pretty um I'm 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 pretty bullish on our ability to do it. Well, this has been fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Talk, talking to smart people is always a good way to, to spend an hour in the afternoon. So Jeremiah, Becky, Sonja, thank you for the work that you're doing. And uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us, Gentry. Yeah, it was thanks fun. So this conversation really has me thinking about the need for a common framework for what graduate preparation in FSL looks like. Only so much of it can be taught in the classroom. At the end of the day, experience really is the best teacher. We cannot expect professors in student affairs graduate programs to prepare new professionals for all the complexities that these positions entail. Only on-the-job learning can do that. If we want to fix our pipeline of new professionals entering the field, we have to acknowledge the responsibility that we play in shaping and molding that pipeline. As an industry, we have to set some standards for the types of hands-on experiential learning that we expect graduate students and interns to have as they prepare to enter the FSL workforce. No more hand-holding. No more just letting GAs advise the Greek Week Committee and shielding them from the nitty-gritty realities and complexities of this work. As an industry, we need to take much more seriously the important role that we play in building and shaping the pipeline of future FSL professionals, knowing that so much of the important work that gets done on so many of our campuses is being done by these entry-level folks. You've been listening to the Dyad Podcast, a production of Dyad Strategies. Brittany Todd is our production assistant. Our theme music is composed by Magnus Moon. For more information, visit us online at www.dyadstrategies.com.